So grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and as you're doing that, I want to make a quick correction from something I said last week. You ever have those moments where you've got three or four tracks of thoughts running at the same time, and you say something, and you're pretty sure that you said X, but you find out later you said Y? So last week, as we were getting going, I mentioned to you that the book of 1 Samuel as a whole, if you want to fit it into the timeline of history, I said that it would fit right around 1000 AD, and that's only 2,000 years off, so it's not that bad. I have no idea what my brain was thinking at that time, but uh, clearly we're talking about 1000 BC, and uh-oh, somebody, now somebody's fact-checking me, okay, that's, that's all I need in my life is more fact-checkers. <clears throat> I assure you, I was wrong, okay? Let me... <clears throat> so I'm glad somebody caught that last week and asked me about it afterwards because they thought, oh, man, I, I, I was thinking it was older than that. I'll go, yeah, you're right. I was up here years and years ago um, teaching on Noah and the ark, and when I was done, a guy came up to me who's a bit of a smart aleck, um, but a great guy, and I love him for a sense of humor, and he said... So Moses built the ark, did he? And I said, what? And then I went, oh, no, did I say Moses? He goes, yeah, you pretty much talked about Moses the whole day. So <laughs> I don't know how that happens. Uh, I need some more uh, kabuka juice. What is it, Kevin? What's it called? That, that brain juice stuff? Yeah, I think I need some more of that. <laughs> okay, please. Oh, so I wanted to clarify that 1000 BC is roughly where we are in the book of Samuel, so that the book of 1 Samuel can be divided up into sort of, well, let's see, chapters, um, chapters 1 through 7 are kind of introduce us to Samuel and what's going on with Israel. Chapters 8 through 15 begin to focus on Saul, and then from chapter 16 through to the end of the book focuses on mostly on David, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. So we closed last week in 1 Samuel chapter 3 by seeing how young Samuel was growing up, learning how to minister in the tabernacle, learning his priestly duties. And we saw how he was given a message by God to deliver to Eli the priest. And it was a very painful message about the destruction of his family. But Samuel was faithful to speak that hard word to Eli that word of prophecy. And so as a result of that, we're told in the last few verses of chapter 3 that God established Samuel as a prophet throughout the land. And God started speaking once again to the people of Israel after he had been silent for a long time. Um, verse 1 told us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There were not many visions. And so that had turned around now because of Samuel's faithfulness. God is once again speaking to the people through Samuel. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, and this is really a continuation of the last few verses of chapter 3, it says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now that's obviously the word of the Lord as the end of chapter 3 tells us that is coming through Samuel. So Samuel's now taking what the Lord is telling him to say, and he's passing it on to the people of Israel, who had previously, and still to this point, 
had turned away from God. And that's a wonderful thing that the word of the Lord is now being spoken and heard again. And what we would hope to see happen as a result of that is that the nation would start repenting and coming back to the Lord. Because God had promised that if their hearts were fully committed to him, if they followed him faithfully, that he would provide for them, that he would be with them, and that he would always give them victory over their enemies. But let's read on and see what happens now. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we pick up in verse 1 again. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Verse 2. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, uh-oh, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Now, as I just said, based on God's multiple promises to them in the past, it's immediately clear that the only reason they were defeated is not because the Philistines were stronger It's because the Israelites were not following God and obeying his word. It had nothing to do with the strength of the military. The Bible says that one man fully devoted to God can put to flight a thousand men. And you would think now that after this defeat, these people would get honest about their sin and they would admit their need for God. But instead, they regather after this defeat, and they act like they honestly can't understand how or why this defeat happened. Verse 3, and when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice, they said, why has the Lord defeated us? They they phrase this question in the way that puts the blame squarely on God. Make no mistake, they knew the answer to this question. But like so many people do still today, maybe like we catch ourselves doing from time to time, whenever something goes wrong, they immediately blame God. It's God's fault. Why did God let this happen? I hear it all the time. Why did God let this happen? You know what I never hear? Rarely, I'll say. I used to hear this from my friend Lee Crandall more than anybody years ago. But you never hear the opposite from Christians. When something wonderful happens in their life, they never say, why did God let that happen? Because I don't deserve it. You see that? It's interesting. When Lee was uh, battling cancer, right there at the end, you know, he, he said people would come up to me and say, don't you ever ask God, why me? And Lee would say, no. As a matter of fact, I say, why not me? It's a powerful viewpoint. So the Israelites immediately turn and attack God. They blame God. Why has the Lord let this happen to us? They refuse to admit that it was their disobedience that had caused their defeat. But they don't stop there with their foolishness. They take it one step further. Look at the last part of verse 3. They said, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh 
so that it may go with us to save us from the hand of our enemies. Now that may on the surface sound like a good and right thing to do. But there's a problem with this because rather than acknowledging their sin and repenting before the Lord, they ran and grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and took it with them into battle like it was some kind of good luck charm. Look closely at what they said in verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh so that it may go with us to save us from the hand of the enemies. They were no longer looking to God to save them. They were now looking to this box to save them. Now, of course, the ark was a, it was a wonderful thing, but it was, there was no saving power in the ark itself. It was only a physical symbol of the presence of God. They were trying to use this religious object as a way to kind of manipulate God to get them out of trouble. But it was of no use to them now because the actual name of that box was not just the ark. It was the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, the ark of the covenant. They had broken their covenant with God. And so as a result, they were now out from under the protection of God. And that box by itself would do them no good whatsoever. Yes, we've seen in our previous studies, they'd taken the ark into battle with them numerous times, and they had won over their enemies. But on those previous occasions, it wasn't just the ark that was with them in battle. It was God that was with them in battle. But since those earlier days, they've turned away from God, and they're worshiping idols, and they're foolish enough to think that the presence of God would still go with them simply by taking that box into the battle. They were looking for power in a religious relic rather than in their relationship with God. And people still do the same thing today. They have statues of saints in their house or on their dashboard in their car. They have rosary beads. They quote religious creeds. They go meticulously through religious rituals, thinking that in those things they will find the power and the help that they're seeking. But none of those things can help them. So the Israelites carried the ark back into battle. And just look at how easily people can be, what would you say, falsely energized and misguided by empty things. Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. And the people saw the ark, and they're thinking, yeah, this is great. All our problems are solved, except they weren't. They had this, can I just put it into modern-day terms? They had this very um, passionate, noisy worship service, so to speak. But God wasn't present there at all. Folks, I'm not going to go down this trail because I don't have time, but I would just caution us. 
Now, I'm all about, I, I love enthusiasm and excitement for the Lord. But it can often be a false indicator of the real presence and activity and power of God. I've been in some worship services in my life. I remember one with uh, dear old Pastor Wombrand when we were overseas. He spent 14 years in communist prison being beaten and, and tortured and brainwashed just to get him to renounce his faith, and he never did. And he came out of that just a rem with a remarkably strong faith. And I remember being in a worship service with him, and I was watching him as a boy, and he worshiped the Lord in this very quiet, personal, respectful way. There was no show. Now, some could look at him and think, well, he, he doesn't really get it. He's not into the vibe. He's not into the mood of the thing. You know, look, we've we got to be careful with that. You can go to the noisiest, hyped-up service in town where they're swinging off the curtains and running around all over the place, God could very well be present there, but that's not an indication that he is. And so these people saw the ark, and boy, they started shouting and hooping and hollering, and to them, everything was fine now. But we see in the verses that follow that it wasn't at all. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And in fact, this second defeat was not only worse in terms of the number of lives, but it was worse in a different way. Verse 11 says they suffered an even more humiliating defeat. It says the ark of the Lord was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And we're starting to see how quickly their disobedience to God is causing them to spiral out of control. But sadly, it doesn't end there. Next, we're told that a man ran from the battle back to Shiloh to tell the people and to tell Eli the priest what had happened. Verses 15 and 16. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle I fled today from the battle line, and Eli said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18, As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. What a disappointing, heartbreaking way for someone to conclude their life. What a horrible epitaph this is to be written at the end of someone's life. And you see, Israel's sin started out small. They didn't all at once decide to rebel in a day. It started out with small things, compromises here and there. And that thing that started out small is now having a compounding effect as sin 
always does. James 1.15 says, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That's quite a downward progression. And sadly, the terrible effects of Israel's sin aren't over yet. He goes on to tell us that Eli's daughter-in-law was about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark had been captured and her husband had been killed and her father-in-law had died, those following verses tell us that she immediately went into labor and she died after giving birth. And we pick up in verse 21, and she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Well, she was right in one sense. The glory had certainly departed from Israel, but she was wrong in another sense because the glory had departed not because the ark had been captured. The ark had been captured because the glory had departed. All this misery was unfolding because the people had turned away from God. Now, we don't have time this morning to read all of chapters 5 and 6, but those two chapters tell us what happened to the ark after it was captured. It tells us that the Philistines took the ark of God and they placed it inside their pagan temple. And they put it at the feet of their god called Dagon. And the next morning when they went to open the temple doors and walked in, they saw that their idol Dagon had fallen over and was lying on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. And you can imagine the conversation. Sort of awkward looking around at each other, going, well, that's odd. And so it says they picked him up and they put him back in place. I mean, we're getting this picture of how utterly helpless false idols are. Well, they went through their pagan worship that day. And the following morning, when they went into the temple, Dagon had fallen over again, except this time his head and his hands had broken off and he's lying there before the ark of God. Now imagine the awkwardness. It's continuing to build, and they're looking around at each other like, hey, this is a little creepy. This is kind of weird. And God is demonstrating to everyone that all other gods are powerless before him. But then it gets worse. God strikes the Philistines with these horrible plagues and infestations. Now they're starting to, to wake up and realize that, hey, taking this ark was a really bad idea. And so they move it to another city, and God strikes that city with plagues. And so they move it to a third city. And the Bible tells us that as they arrived with the ark at the third city, the people came out furious, like sort of with pitchforks and torches kind of thing. And they said, don't you dare bring that in here. We've heard already about what has happened to the previous two cities. We're not taking the ark in. So after seven months of playing hot potato with the ark, trying to get rid of this thing, the Philistines had gained a new reverence for the power of God. 
And they all came together and decided the only way to deal with this is to send the ark back to the Israelites. We got to get rid of it. And they went through this whole elaborate process that you can read about on your own time of exactly how to send it back to make sure they were doing it right so they didn't get killed. And anyway, the, 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 uh, the ark of God now leaves the Philistines and heads back to Israel. And I find it interesting that the enemies of God now had more reverence for the power of God than the people of God did. It's a sad commentary. So the Ark of the Covenant finally arrives back home with the Israelites, and then the strangest thing happens. Instead of putting the Ark back inside the Holy of Holies, where it belongs, chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. Now, we have a hard time in our modern so-called advanced society to really allow the impact of what has just happened to bowl us over, and it ought to. If we remember our studies back in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy about the building of the tabernacle and all of that and the exact placement of everything. God had set up exact dimensions and exact placement for everything in the tabernacle. The ark comes back. And what do they do with it? They put it in a house. Not, not just for the weekend till they can get things sorted out, you know. They stick it away in some guy's house and they leave it there for 20 years years. That is a staggering statement. And it gives us a snapshot of the spiritual temperature of God's people. But thankfully, during all this time, Samuel has continued doing what Samuel does. He has continued faithfully proclaiming the word of the Lord to the people. And finally, we see what appears to be a change beginning in their hearts as a result. Verse 2 of chapter 7. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented or mourned after the Lord. Now on the surface, this appears to be a genuine change of heart. But tears are not always evidence of real change. Samuel had observed the, the flip-flop behavior of these people for a very long time. And he calls them out on it in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if, there's the key, if, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Man, I love the confidence in that last statement. You know, now this, this reveals several things to us. First of all, it reveals, as I said, tears of regret don't necessarily indicate a repentant heart. Sometimes people will cry only because they got caught doing wrong. If you've ever raised children, you know that. 
Sometimes people will cry only because they are in a desperate situation and they want God to come and bail them out of trouble. So Samuel challenges their motives. And he says, guys, you know this. You've, you heard this. Your parents and grandparents heard this from Joshua, from Moses. <clears throat> the only way to truly return to the Lord is to do so with all your heart and to serve him only. Well, this also reveals to us that these people who were claiming to be God's people were still worshiping idols. Because when Samuel told them to put away their foreign gods, they didn't say, we don't have any. Look at verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. You know, my question, though, is why is Samuel even having to tell them this? You remember back when we were in the book of Joshua, Joshua gave the people a clear choice that day. A, you can serve pagan gods, or B, you can serve the one true God of heaven. You can't do both. And the people replied confidently in Joshua 24, 16, far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. And yet here they are serving other gods. And our temptation, or maybe I can't speak for you, but I think I can. Our temptation is to point fingers at them and say, what a bunch of pathetic losers. Until... We look at ourselves in the mirror and realize that their struggle is our struggle. Because of sin, we're all constantly drawn away from having a heart that is fully devoted to the Lord and a life that serves him only at all times. We're drawn away by other things. Hasn't that been your struggle this week? Hasn't it been mine? And so this should cause us to search our hearts now and ask what competing gods or idols have I brought into my life? Well, the people now seem to be sincere in their desire to repent. And so verse 5 says, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And now there's the key to it all. The people are no longer hiding their idols under their bed or in the barn They're no longer making excuses for their waywardness. They're doing the one thing that they should have done all along. They're confessing, admitting their sin. Because true cleansing and forgiveness only come when we get honest with ourselves, when we get honest with others, when we get honest with God, and we confess our sin. This is why, and I'll I'll say it to you again for the 800th time, this is why so much of this, quote, preaching that goes on nowadays that is all happy and positive and feel good 
and well, I just don't see it as my job to bring people down. My job is to give people a boost for the week. Then you're not a pastor. You can't be. You're a motivational speaker. There's a difference. Without lovingly and boldly pointing people to their sin, there can be no salvation. And we're sending them to hell. I would much prefer to get up here and talk to you every Sunday about daisies and puppy dogs and cotton candy and rainbows. Well, I don't know about all that, but cotton candy's pretty good. You, you think I enjoy weeks studying hour after hour, knowing that I have to come here and talk about the heaviness of sin and rebellion and waywardness and our need for confession and repentance? I, that's not something I look forward to. Do you understand? Without a person recognizing that sin is their problem and repentance is their need, we're missing everything. The grace of God, the salvation of Jesus Christ means nothing without that. Nothing. It's when we confess our sin that freedom comes, that cleansing comes, that restoration comes. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And we know 1 John 1, 9, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's what Samuel does next. Verse 9 of chapter 7. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now, someone who doesn't, hasn't been taught about this whole sacrificial system, especially a child, might ask, as, as my children did when they were growing up and, you know, about that high and they were starting to understand some of this stuff with tears in their eyes they would say why did an innocent little lamb have to be killed it didn't do anything wrong that's not fair why did they do that well as a reminder of what we looked at back when we were studying through the tabernacle and the sacrifices when an innocent lamb was being offered it was saying to the person who brought that offering, what's happening to this lamb should be happening to you. This lamb is dying in your place. It is a substitute for you. The judgment of God that should be falling on you is falling on this innocent lamb instead. And that innocent lamb, of course, was a foreshadowing. It was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who would one day come and live a sinless life and die on a cross and take the punishment for our sin upon himself so that all who believe in him could be set free and have eternal life. So Samuel is there offering the sacrifice and the people are repenting before the Lord. And we would think that all would be sunny and happy 
But something happens to them that also so often happens to us when, when we've chosen to come back to the Lord, to repent, to make things right, to make a clean start, to live for him. What happens during this wonderful time? The enemy came and attacked them again. You can almost count on it. But this time, instead of running to grab the ark like a good luck charm, they do the right thing. They cry out to the Lord for help. And you can read it there for yourself in your own time. God came and through this powerful thunder came and miraculously delivered his people. What a difference this time because they cried out to the Lord than from the last time when they didn't. And after all this is over, Samuel does something beautiful to commemorate this occasion. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Now we've seen stones being used many times throughout our Through the Bible study so far. Stones were set up as altars to worship the Lord, and stones were set up as memorials to remember the Lord's faithfulness. And every time people walked past one of those altars or one of those memorials, they would be prompted to remember that God had met someone there and he had done great things. And whenever children would see a pile of stones set up somewhere, they would ask their mom and dad, what do those stones mean? And it would give the parents an opportunity to say to their children, let me tell you an amazing story about what God did for us that day. You setting up any memorials in your life? I hope so. And by doing this, by seeing that physical reminder, the people could then be reminded that despite their many failures, the Lord had helped them all along the way. Chapter 4 ended with Ichabod. The glory has departed. Chapter 7 ends with Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. What a beautiful turnaround. And as you and I, I think, look back over our own journey with the Lord, we have to say that we've all created some Ichabod moments where we've acted in such a way that the glory has departed. But we also have to say that we've had some Ebenezer moments where in spite of our many failures, in spite of the hardships that life may have brought our way, we can say with certainty through it all, thus far the Lord has helped us. Man, this past year, has brought things into our lives that none of us would have ever wished for. It's brought financial hardship to many. It's brought medical hardship to many. It's brought relational hardship. It's brought tremendous amounts of emotional hardship. People have experienced so many Ichabod moments this past year where all they could muster the strength to say is surely the glory of the Lord has departed. But as we close now, I want to do so by readjusting our gaze off of those Ichabod moments 
of this past year. And I want you instead to come to a place called Ebenezer to pause and remember the countless ways that God's goodness and faithfulness have been so evident to us all along the way. So that together we might say with assurance and with thankfulness, thus far the Lord has helped us. But you know, it's not just thus far that we can count on the Lord's faithfulness. Psalm 48, 14 completes that thought by taking us the full length of life's journey when it says, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. John Newton understood this when he wrote the words of amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace, capital G, tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this honest account of the foolishness and waywardness of your people, this Ichabod moment, because in it we see a reflection of our own struggle against sin. We also thank you for the reminder of this Ebenezer moment through which we see all of your ongoing goodness and faithfulness in continuing to help us all along the way. I pray that we would be both humbled and uplifted by remembering your goodness to us. And I pray that our lives in the days ahead, though they be sprinkled with Ichabod moments and Ebenezer moments, I pray that when it's all said and done, I pray that our lives would bring glory and pleasure to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see